the human-centric podcast the podcast all about the talents of today and tomorrow presented by deutsche telekom so hello everyone and heartily welcome back to the human-centric podcast Today, we are going to talk about this most difficult and flighty and yet absolutely life-changing topic for any corporation. We're going to try and discuss the beast that is corporate culture. What is it actually? How does it come to life? Who owns it? And how can we influence and change it? Can we change it? Does it change us? Of course, we all know the saying, culture-eating strategy for breakfast. I guess even money people would find it possible to put some kind of value or monetization definition on corporate culture. It's also got a commercial side to it, this podcast you're about to enter into. And we are so happy about the guests we managed to get for this one. So we've been trying to kind of mix up age here. So we've got one kind of seasoned and mature gentleman. He's actually been the head of uh, HR for Metro AG for a number of years, among other things on his very impressive CV. He's now running his own company. His name is Heiko Hutmacher. And then on the other side of that table, we have the young, the up and coming, that rather brilliant entrepreneurial spirit and soul, Gabriel Ganev Koibgen. And... Well, to just give you a little bit of a teaser, guys, we ended up discussing, among other things, like emotions and how they come into the workplace in this episode with two men. I'm just overthrilled about this episode. What we would like you to listen in for, this is a bit of a quirky one, but we're trying to geek out on how can we actually be conscious and how can we shape, and all of us actually, whether we're a leader or not, work to create the culture that is needed to do good work together. Have a listen. So, guys, today we are talking about this most crucial and yet most flighty of topics. We are going to try and nail the beast that is corporate culture. Oh, God, if I had a penny for every time I've heard that terminology mentioned in a, a corporate context and how many times we can get confused about it comes to kind of the same amount, doesn't it? What is it actually? And how does it come to life? Who owns a corporate culture? And who can change it? Can we change it? Does it change us? The oldest saying around, of course, is the one about culture eating strategy for breakfast. And I guess even the money people would find it possible to put some kind of value or monetization definition on the table when it comes to the creation, the existence, and also the change of a culture in a corporate workplace. What is a company with a bad culture worth? And what is a company with a good culture worth? All of these questions and many, many more, I hope, I am looking forward to dig into together with our most honorable guests today, Heike Hutmacher and Gabriel Ganev Koibgen. That's a mouthful for me right there. Well done. Have both taken the time to join us. Lovely to see you both. Thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, Heiko, you're even dialing in from exotic Thailand, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I feel a little bit awkward looking at my living room there, which is the, a fake virtual background. I'm actually in Koh Samui, Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> so, Heiko, if I've understood things correctly, you're the, like, like the former Chief Human Resources Officer and Board Member at Metro AG. You're currently the owner of something that you call Hatcher Advisory. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, we have a senior on our plate. We have a senior within the field of HR, and I can't wait to discuss with you both what it's been like for you over the decades that you have spent in the world of corporations and digging into the topic of that is HR. And at the same time, also, I know that you have a very kind of, how shall I put it, future-driven perspective still. And then on the other side, we have Gabriel ganev Koibgen. Gabriel, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, Gabriel, I think we've kind of asked you to come to the microphone today more as a representative of something younger, I guess. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) But your reputation precedes you. You do have an entrepreneurial spirit around you. And you are also an avid believer in like the importance and the force of HR. Yes, I truly do. What is the most important thing for you if you just mention something off the top of your head? I think the people, <laughs> putting the people together that can work well enough together, but also have or dare to have a little of confrontation, I would say. Oh, yes. Oh, I love that. So not only to be nice together, but also to dare to create friction and have real discussions. And uh, exactly. that's a brilliant point. So, Gabriel, you are the founder of the tech startup Mia. Is that how I say that? Yes. In Cologne. And you're also the founder of TEDx in Cologne. That is also correct. So, yeah, congratulations on that. What is better than sharing ideas worth spreading, huh? If we get down to business, uh, gentlemen, we have also today brought to the microphone, Svetlana, you're here today in a kind of a little bit different capacity because I want to use you two gentlemen who are, of course, external influences today and look in at the Deutsche Telekom phenomenon and try to describe maybe a little bit, Svetlana, where the telecom culture is today, needs to be today and tomorrow, and kind of what kind of cornerstones can we find that constitute the corporate culture in telecom these days? It's a pleasure, Hannah. Um, yeah, so that kind of ties us all together. Here we are. If I just start us off with the first question, guys, and anyone can answer this one. Why? I, I know that we say it is, but why would we say, is culture actually good for business? Why do we care about it? Anyone? Yeah, I'll gladly uh, give that a shot because it is uh, one of the, uh, if not the real differentiator between successful companies and not. Of course, you have companies that uh, possess a certain code or that possess you know, patents and work on that basis. But whatever other uh, company you have, eventually you just simply need to work through people. If you have a strategy and you want to put it into place, that only works with people. And so therefore, it is absolutely a differentiator. So here we are at the very heart of this podcast project of us, of course. We're calling ourselves the human-centric podcast. And it is, of course, because at the center of any attempt at creating and implementing a strategy in a corporation lies the human effort, lies the human perspective. It has to. And so you're saying it's absolutely crucial. It's black and white. Yeah, and I would, um, you know, sometimes when you talk about uh, human-centered organizations, uh, you talk about the importance of people. And it sometimes all sounds nice and being in the third person but a tremendous part of change in organizations is actually to find ways to really personalize it. When you try to change something, it's easy to point somewhere and to say, uh, we need to change this and that, but there's always three fingers pointing at yourself as well. And so therefore 
the ability to change oneself as leaders, as middle managers, as uh, employees is absolutely crucial. Yeah. So, oh, I love that. So taking it from the them over there to the, the us, it's us, it's me, it's us. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's super. Gabriel, what are you thinking right now? Why should we care about culture from your perspective? As a representative of young people, I would say that young people are very, very, very passionate and are striving to have something to work for, to have something to believe in and to have someone like a leader who believes in us. And I hear that every day uh, that I'm talking, for example, to the TEDx team who is maybe looking for a job and that they're feeling desperate about that. And I think it's all about, one of our former speakers told me that it's not about doing the right thing, but not doing the wrong thing. You can only ruin someone's motivation with maybe not communicating well or with putting barriers or making things more difficult. And therefore, I try to see myself only as an enabler. I'm like, in the past three years in TEDx, I've been trying to step more and more back of doing things and rather enabling things for the other people mm -hmm. so that they can have fun, that they can put their ideas on the TEDx stage. So we sense that behind the phenomenon that is culture, however we are going to try and define it today, lies human activity, human choice and human behavior. So like what you're saying, Gabriel, is how you choose to be with your gang. I would guess that creates a kind of culture in TEDx Cologne, am I right? Yeah. Um, like right now we're doing a survey with the university, how happy people are. And just when I posted the question to join that survey, everyone answered with, yes, here's my email, please, I want to contribute. Um, and that just <laughs> makes me so, so happy and proud of what we've achieved. And I know that there is a lot of things that we can do better and... And also I want to mention, I've worked at a company called Oscar a few years ago, which is a small consultancy for young talents who want to strive and consult companies and develop themselves. And there I had this culture, which was, in my opinion, absolutely perfect because everyone was striving to be better, was striving to take on responsibility. And we didn't have any boundaries because even the sea level of that company was young and had the opportunity to um, be a consultant after like three months and then take on the board of that company. And I think that's not everything. It's a small bubble that works mm. in itself. But you could see there that so many people would put so much effort and energy into working and having fun while, um, I don't know, like we were really having a struggle of finding a solution for a certain problem, then we would have some fun playing kicker or whatever, and then going back to the problem. So the dedication comes with fun and comes with also different perspectives because the teams that were put together also were not yeah. put together of like two of the same people, but someone with a perspective on this side and someone with a different perspective. And I, I, through these experiences, I just believe... It's so crucial. Okay, you are mentioning so many very, very valuable things right now. One of which, big time hit for me, is the simple idea of having fun together. I actually heard the other day that you can measure the success of group therapy on how much laughter has existed in the group, <laughs> right? And that's like real laughter, you know, that kind of laughter that kind of won't stop or go away. So I think you are so onto something. You know, 
if I'm pretending to be an engineer listening in right now for a second, I would still be going, what do they mean when they say culture? What is it and how can we define it? So I'm going to try, people. I'm bringing to the table today a definition. It's from one of my big mentors and the person I really have tried to kind of read most of what is created in the last decades. He's coming of age. His name is Edgar Schein and he's an old Swiss MIT professor in organizational psychology. So here goes. Here is a suggested definition of culture from Professor Edgar Schein. Listen up. A pattern of shared basic assumptions that a group has learned as it solved its problems of external adaptations and internal integration that has worked well enough to be considered valid and therefore to be taught to new members as the correct way you perceive, think and feel in relation to those problems. Whew, I know it's meaty, but I love this one. I think what it's saying to me is that through solving problems together, we get to a place of thinking we understand something and that understanding takes on the form of assumptions that we will hold up together. Does that make sense to you guys? I mean, it, uh, it does make sense. Uh, for me, there's a somewhat simpler way of putting it. It's the way it feels Go. around here. And this, the way how it feels yes. around here is, of course, set by the experiences that you make. And these experiences are both driven by behaviors displayed by leaders, by managers, by co-workers, but it's as well set by the rules that this organization has, you know, when you have very narrow uh, uh, boundaries of your own responsibilities, you're boxed into certain areas and are not supposed to go to other places, then indeed that creates a certain culture. If you do what uh, Gabriel was so nicely describing there from Oscar and other places, you create energy. So it's simply how it feels around and all of the conditions that make this. Which, by the way, when organizations try to change cultures often underestimate that it requires adaptation from various levers rather than only one or two. Lovely. Love it. Any other reactions on my attempt at, or Edgar Schein's attempt at defining culture for us? I, you know, I, I fully agree, Hannah, with your definition and I also relate to what Heiko simplified uh, in his own words. My mm. definition of culture is very close to what Heiko said. So it's how it feels in here, but it's actually it's the smell of the place. So you come yes. in and you have the smell and you can't describe it. You just feel it. You feel whether it's, uh, you know, it's a freedom, entrepreneurship, and it's fun, or you feel constraints and process and control. And it's, you know, you don't have to over-engineer that, but uh, that smell gives you mm -hmm. energy. Whether you really want to go and run and deliver and be super committed and do more than expected or it gives you a feeling of tiredness that you just want to follow from, you know, uh, from nine to five or whatever hours you have and not do more. And that smell, this environment which is created has a fundamental impact on business productivity, innovation, and then, of course, you know, success in the market. So that smell, that feel, I fully agree with Heiko, it's a differentiation as a factor for the company's yeah. I love that. And thank you for those words, Svetlana. I, if I take you back to you, Heiko, I have to ask you out of curiosity, 
If I had asked you 20 years ago, would you define culture the same way or has this changed for you in the last decades? Um, I mean, there are some things that have definitely changed. Uh, so, for example, Gabriel was talking about purpose-led organizations. You know, if you would have 20, 25 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, you would have asked people about purpose-led organizations. You could have read a little bit about In Good to Great because <laughs> there it shines through. But uh, if you would have tried to bring this into an organization, mindfulness and other things, I think most of the time you would have just uh, been walked out afterwards. So in this regard, you know, the greater depth and the greater focus there has indeed for me come over the last yeah, 20, 25 years. Yes. And have you, you know, it's the traditional role, isn't it? Like when I've met HR directors for different companies over the years, I have met a lot of frustrated people who've been trying to get their voice heard at the table around topics such as culture. Well, it, um, Where, when, you, when you look at the role of HR leaders, they have really shifted. You know, when you take it a little bit like the, the oh. Russian matryoshkas, these little dolls, uh, yeah, know, yeah, at yeah. the beginning, there's, there was all administration. Then very quickly, it became the industrial and employee relations manager. Then it became employee development and then it became a little bit something like uh, human capital development. But the real true voice of HR is actually only really heard, in my view, when you become the leadership and change consultant of the company, which is kind of like the biggest matryoshka where all the others are inside. And so, therefore, there is a lot of organizations struggling with the fact that, you know, the, both the strength of uh, this HR side as much as the interpretation of the role as the leadership and change agent of the and consultant of the company is not there. Yeah. So, yeah, I even find that some of the time I hear there's a difference in language and terminology. So I hear like the money people will be talking their commercial language and then the HR language is somehow different. And it's like magnets that you can't get to work together. Uh, that is uh, deadly because unless you speak the language of business, can you be uh, a successful HR leader? It doesn't work any other way. That's good advice right there. That's interesting. I'm just aware I want to kind of try and harvest all this experience that you've had. What would you say if you were to talk to a young HR director of a company today, let's say within the telecom industry, what would be like your top advice? How do you take business life into the future from an HR perspective now? Yeah, I, I would uh, kind of answer it two ways. Uh, one way would be addressing a little bit uh, some of the things that Gabriel has been doing. And uh, one is a more principled one. I think the more principled one is, you know, just like you said before, the way it feels around here is most of the time defined basically by one person, which is the manager or the, the manageress, of course, of a, of a department. And the effort going into making these managers stronger people leaders, you know, you cannot invest enough in it. And I see organizations yeah. often not doing that, which comes with a lot of things. And then the other thing is in the recruitment, really go much, much more for attitude and character rather than anything else because mm. there is this beautiful quote by a military man of all people but uh, he said uh, Norman Schwarzkopf leadership is a potent combination of strategy and character if you need to be without one be without a strategy and uh, <laughs> and you know wow. uh, what Gabriel did at Oscar where we met together what he does on things like TEDx bringing young people 
to places where they do more than learn content, but learn something about, yeah. you know, building character is totally central. Oh, God. And it just gives me hope for the future, too. I have a son who's very much like Gabriel and who has that same mindset. And I... Oh, I'm so relieved that it's actually there and that it's taken the place of, of some of the like the older generation's more cynical, less um, r relational approach to corporate life. Gabriel, uh, what's going on with you right now? What are you thinking? Yeah, I'm happy and sad at the same time. Um, I feel like it's good that it's being talked about and I, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts and other sources to get information on how things should be or have to be and how I can improve our culture. But at the same time, when for Mia, I'm going to my clients, which usually are in the industrial sector, I see reality and um, mm -hmm. I see that reality looks very, very different and that reality in industrial companies is far, far, far away from what we're talking about right now. Because there it's not about the people. The people can be replaced easily. They're not valued. They're not being invested in. No one cares about what they think, they feel. It's just about do your job, improve the process, solve the problem and not thought about what does he actually or she actually need to solve the problem. Um, and even mm -hmm. at BMW, which was my first stop as an intern, I observed that the person who was the most responsible for solving a problem, I mean, it was a very pressured situation, but they were forced to solve the problem tomorrow because it was costing them so much money. But the person who had to solve the problem didn't have the space or didn't get the capacity to solve the problem. It was just trying to tell them, do it now, but not... And he was working yeah. from, from like early in the morning to late at night, like limiting the, the hours he was allowed to work. But from that very, very first month of my work, I was thinking, this is not how you can solve a problem. You know, I so agree with what you're saying there. And I, you know, we humans, we are not artificial. We are indeed humans. And we are, if we are something, we are like hardware and software, whatever. But we are not machines. And we need to understand there's this overflow of demand right now in so many industries and businesses of like saying, do more for less resources, quarter by quarter, do more for less resources, be more exhausted and take it because we all have to take it right now. If it's a mathematical equation, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It leads to chaos and destruction. And finding that we know that companies we like to compare ourselves with actually have kind of cracked this code, haven't they? And are trying to uh, look at resources and indeed human resources in another way. Thank you for bringing that to the table. And thank you for your sadness. I think it's a very important sadness. Yes, there's a lot of companies out there not living this truth, not doing this stuff yet. It's an interesting question, isn't it? How can we influence them to walk in the right direction? Maybe um, it, it drives an association uh, for me, the points you just made, which is, you know, very often I find as well that there's a differentiation being made between the person, you know, that is at work and the person that is somewhere else and not at work which in my view mm. is obviously complete nonsense because we're one human being. We bring our full being into any place where we are. If there is an intention to go the direction that uh, rightly so uh, Gabriel would expect to find, then it has to start with leaders, 
you know, mm-hmm. setting role model a behavior. And only when they're really starting to move, can they expect the rest of the organization really to move. It doesn't work in another way, in my experience. And that really requires uh, conversation in a team setting that uh, involves open feedback for which you need to create trust. To have trust, you need to show vulnerability. So there's a lot of steps that uh, are required to get to this. Yes, and you keep coming back to this point, and I so agree, and I absolutely love you for taking, bringing us back there every time, the role and importance and responsibility that lies on the shoulder of a leader and showing up. So we're defining this very flighty phenomenon. We're absolutely sure that it's vital and crucial, and it can like mean you're a success or not if you are a company. This phenomenon called culture And we are pointing to how each and every one of us actually co-create it when we come to work, because we do, don't we? We will influence the culture the moment we come into the workplace, the moment we open our mouths, the moment we look at one another. Well, and these days we're even sitting at home. That's a different topic all on its own. And then you're saying that at the end of the day, leaders have a huge, actually not only responsibility, but they have a huge opportunity, don't they, to influence that culture and to color, to make the right smell, to make the right feeling in the workspace. What I love about the Edgar Schein definition, which I don't think is quite in the thing of how it feels in a place, is that Schein talks about having assumptions, that we share assumptions. And if we assume, if you and I assume that we know and agree on some common rules, and we think we agree on what we agree upon, that's when it gets dangerous, isn't it? Because then we're not conscious of where we're actually steering. I've recently seen a, a company doing a very, very nice survey where they, in a team setting, not only ask participants a certain opinion on a certain topic, but indeed ask as well about the underlying assumptions and makes them then visible yes. to a team. So a very, very great point you're making. I love the idea of assumptions. And we are all assumption machines, aren't we? We create stories as we go along. Svetlana, bringing us to the story of the assumptions of the telecom industry right now. What are the basic assumptions you guys are running by? You know, what I'm thinking right now, and I'll come to the assumptions, but what goes via my mind is going looking back into my own profession of HR. Uh, was Also, Heiko gave a good example of matryoshkas. And since I'm coming from a Soviet Union background, <laughs> that's very close to my heart. Yes. The profession of human resources was very much about resources. It was very much about being you know, show productivity, managing resources in the best way. And it has been decades like that without the word human in it yeah mm-hmm. and i think now we come to realize that the human resources we have they easily can come and go if we don't have the right skill set we don't have the right talents in the organization so we really have to change to make sure people select us they choose us and they stay and they actually can shine inside So the whole assumptions and the change what I'm experiencing right now in Deutsche Telekom, but also in the outside world, is this changing the whole profession more towards human and not just mm-hmm. resources. Yes. And in Telekom, my story joining Deutsche Telekom in 2018 was basically for the reason to work with growth mindsets and culture change. When we had a segment of companies, which, you know, and Telco is an incumbency. So we have organizations in the countries and we are, you know, 
partially state-owned. We are incumbents. We, you know, we know the game. You know, we have power uh, in on the countryside. And uh, to change the mindset from incumbency to unincumbency, to have from fixed mindset to growth mindset, for me, the tipping point to join Deutsche Telekom as a company was to work with growth mindset and work with mm. management teams and change the perception of a declining business that Telco cannot grow. Yeah, the Telco is declining quarter over quarter, year over year, to change perception to growth per se and to go against all the arguments which are very yes. intelligent and you know of a number of the management who had many many arguments why we cannot grow to actually say yes we can grow but you have to change the way you think you have to change the way you deal with assumptions you have to change the way you deal with the customer and how you meet the customer and how you live and breathe this growth mindset inside so i think this rejuvenation assumption to concentrate on human centricity putting mm. very often employee first and customer second because employee creates the value for the customer but also making customers as our fans i would say it's a huge transformation and it doesn't happen you know in one day gabriel <laughs> even though <laughs> i wish i had the magic stick and say yeah it's going to change it right now it's a journey but we are also very open and vulnerable. Oh, thank you, Svetlana. That's a brilliant input right there. You're pointing to, to Gabriel. Did you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think the biggest problem, I think big companies like, for example, Telecom or Metro, they're being forced by society and by their own people to make that change because I think it's inevitable that you can not do differently because just the next generation demands it and if you want to have future employees and future talents you need to adapt to the market but i'm really curious to see how small and medium companies who have been owned for decades or even centuries by families how they will adapt and how they will understand the need and how much time it will take them because i think that is something very I heard a lot of people talk about their employees and their stuff and how that they don't put the employees on a pedestrian, but maybe the customer or even just the revenue. And so I think that is a culture change that will take some time, but and also yeah. then creates the culture of that company. Yes, so go, Heiko. Uh, so the comment I wanted to make that indeed I can recognize the comment that Gabriel made about the mid-sized companies. But I have as well seen the other spectrum. So sometimes, you know, these hidden champions are actually very far ahead of the curve uh, because I see them react very fast, very quick, very agile. But indeed, you have as well the other side of the equation, which is the one that you described. Uh, and possibly this mm -hmm. is still the majority. Backtracking us two seconds here, I come back to this idea in this podcast episode of the age of the older and the younger. And so Svetlana, when I first saw the TED talk and started getting into the material of Carol Dweck, that is the idea of growth mindset, I was so thrilled to see this woman who was not 25. <laughs> you know, she's got maturity and she's got age on her uh, body and she's got the insight and the wisdom of a generation that, of course, is so aware of what it doesn't know now in terms of the digital, like we all need to be so digitally savvy these days. It makes a lot of people, even my age, feel like we're over the curve, feel like that we shouldn't take up space anymore. 
I've had some depressing conversations in different corporations about this, where people my age, and I'm 52, that's uh, breaking news, people my age are saying that, oh, I don't want to take a place in the meetings anymore because I can't really follow all the digital development the whole time, so I don't feel like I'm relevant. And then the young people are saying, oh, I don't want to be rude or seem like I'm arrogant, so I don't want to talk too much, I don't want to take up too much space because I want to be humble and learn. And what we're left with is like, Nobody speaks. <laughs> the basic assumption that what's needed right now is a cultural change. And that comes with people speaking their opinions, speaking their meanings and influencing the cultures that they are in. That's basically what we're saying here, isn't it? Haiku, this one goes to you, of course, darling. I'm sorry to tie you to the age uh, post together with me. What do you think about, like, when you look at the younger generations, what advice can we give them? Yeah, first of all, I think, the, yeah. you know, the, the age curve is one that you feel yourself and that you relate to yourself. So I think Thank the, you. the outside uh, measure, I think, counts only in so far as you're not having a learning attitude and an openness attitude. I think if you lose that at some moment in time, then I think it needs to be counted against one. <laughs> I have to say I have not encountered silent rooms, really not. I think people do make themselves hurt. And if you do have an organization like I've been to in uh, at least one time where, you know, the organization previously was pretty much shut up by uh, an overbearing hierarchy and status-driven organization, you can absolutely change that by simply the leaders bringing a little bit more humility and a little bit more uh, yeah, just listening attitude mm. to the table. That doesn't go like this, but you absolutely can get to the point that uh, the rooms get start talking, and especially the young generation. As much as, by the way, as well, some of the olders, they're not shy. I have rarely encountered silent rooms. So if we have strong hierarchies, if we have like a little bit old-fashioned kind of fear-driven cultures, you are saying, again, if we point to the leaders, it's absolutely able to change. We can change it, but it takes leaders being more humble, listening more, and just basically role modeling. That's what you're saying. Am I right? Uh, I mean, this is an extraordinarily important element of it. Very. Uh, extraordinarily important because I do believe that a group of leaders of a division, an organization of a country can just sit together and decide which culture they want to have. Because I think that's always <laughs> how it starts. But then in the execution, it is, of course, the role modeling, but there are many more facets that make this work because you might have inhibitors, I don't know, uh, let's say in your title structure, the way you promote people, the way you recognize performance that might all come uh, and show you and direct you back into the old. So there's a lot of things that you need to adapt to eventually shift this sustainably. Yeah. We should have like a chief culture officer in any company. That's uh, CHRO, in my view. Now, actually, it's even the CEO, I like it. Uh, to be frank. CEO, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Svetlana, yes, you th you're saying it's the CEO. Because yes. he, or, he or she needs to understand the power that sits within. And the really good yeah. ones, they absolutely have this, which is why you see much, much more conversation about these things nowadays. Mm. I do so hate it every time I hear the terminology soft skills, because to me, there's nothing soft about this. It's like a something made up to kind of, I often hear, I hear these words, like people are calling it something wishy-washy. And I guess 
Because if you are an engineer, I guess it's difficult to nail down and drill down and put into an Excel sheet this what we're trying to describe. And yet we're coming back to this pivotal point of saying it's so crucial the whole time. Gabriel, is this advice you can roll by? Do you think you can go into hierarchical old-fashioned cultures and change them by being more humble? Um, first of all, I want to say I am an engineer uh, and people <laughs> Yes, of course you are. Yeah. Um, Tell me about the soft skills and the Excel sheet. <laughs> well, I'm very well with Excel, so I think you can com combine both. And I think what it's lacking is the acceptance of emotions in a meeting room. It's yeah fine to be angry and that you don't have to play a role that is expected of you to get your point across or to get the promotion. And I think that's a huge, huge, huge problem in our corporate world that there is no space for emotions, there's no space for relationship, but only for facts whatsoever. But on the other hand, there are always emotions. And one one easy example is that if you're making a mistake in your private life, you would say, oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. But if you have a hierarchical relationship, it, most of the people think it's fine. I'm the boss, I can be wrong. And I think that's something that is getting across, but is still not there. Like, mm. no matter who I'm talking to, every problem stems from not being able to express his or her emotions. And I'm having the yeah. same problem. I don't feel like it's accepted. And I think that's <gasps> a huge oh, issue. Oh, wow. This is so interesting that we went to this place. I've only just recently in my own life, I've learned to actually not only to accept the fact that I have emotions, even when I work, but to even stop up when I experience one. If it's something I would call a negative emotion, I can these days, I've just learned to stop and go, that's interesting. What is that emotion about? Right? And then so many times out of 10, I come up with something interesting, a new perspective on my own inner life or a new perspective on a relationship I have at work or how I feel about tasks. So thanks for bringing that up. And yes, of course, because when we're describing the feeling in a place or even the smell in a place, what are we describing? We are describing the mood. Among other things, we are describing the mood, aren't we? And, and we do as well react to our expectation as to what the situation you're currently in, you expect uh, yes. what you expect it to be. I mean, Gabriel, yes. Gabriel and I have gotten to know each other in a TEDx where I where actually uh, talked about the fact that, you know, universities still teach people, you know, content for almost, I would say, almost 100% of the time. Yet, as soon as you go into the workplace, everything that you just speak about makes the real difference. Yes. I'm just going to barge in here and I'm going to tell all our listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, go and watch Heiko's very, very excellent TED Talk on emotional intelligence, which I thought was very, very to the point and raises a lot of stuff that we don't have time to cover everything in this episode. I would have loved to speak more. But yes, so the individual's responsibility for becoming fluent in the language of emotions and understanding emotions. I mean, that even if we put that responsibility back on a leader, even that would make a huge difference, wouldn't it? If I could just throw in that, I believe that a, a leader that is not able to show emotions in some shape or form, very, very rarely will get the trust of people because vulnerability is a basis mm. for trust. 
And if you don't trust, you don't have a chance to effect change because when you change, you need to trust somebody that the direction that you're going is somehow one that you want to follow. So sorry, Gabriel. Okay. Uh, that connection I wanted to make. Yeah, I find it funny. Like um, I also have or have always had uh, issues with showing emotions, but I'm I'm training and I'm learning. And I'm working on it. <laughs> I lived in Latin America for a while and everyone was telling me, oh, you don't show emotions. You're not emotional at all. And when I come to Germany, they always tell me, oh, you're so emotional. So uh, it always, <laughs> it's always a matter of perspective. Um, so that, that brings us to national cultures, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I wanted to say is that at TEDx, I try to embrace my emotions, try to tell what I feel because... I feel like there people are more open for it and also more sensitive to it. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, I take that attitude into, for example, a sales meeting with a client and I understand or I see how or observe how they react to it. And I feel they feel like, hmm, is he really like, why is he opening up? It's, it's not a private conversation. Like th th yeah, these yeah, topics yeah. don't belong where, where here. Are the yeah. Where are the borders between like personal and private? Even that is fascinating. I want to bring something to the table here because, of course, so I've delivered like leadership development trainings and communication trainings to all sorts of corporations for nearly 20 years. And it took me far too long to realize this. But after a while, I was aware that it was like there's this double standard. So, so many people are telling me that, yeah, so you go to a nice retreat and you do like a leadership development workshop and you, you learn all these nice ways to deal with other people. You learn how to deal with emotions. You learn how to open up. You learn all this stuff. And then you come back out there and the jungle is different. It's everyone fights for himself. And there's, a, there's like a double standard and so many people have kind of taken me aside and gone, you know, what we're learning here isn't really worth anything because out there I have to fight. So to the people who are left fighting out there, yes, go, Heiko, yeah. It, it, it triggers uh, something for me uh, that I've really learned over my career, which is when you have really very central interventions, workshops that you want to do that help you shift an organization, you cannot run them in a random way, which means, you know, you send a couple of people there, then you send the next people there and the next, because every time you yeah. do that, people come back and need possibly a manager that hasn't been going through it. So if you have interventions that are really aiming at a fundamental and sustainable change in behavior, you have to run it cascading. The board needs to start after that, their direct reports, etc., etc., until you reach everybody. Because only that way you can make sure that people understand what's going on and what the next level actually will go through afterwards. So mm. only then can you be congruent. And, you know, speaking as an external in that connection, I would say I totally agree with you. And so many times out of 10, as an external deliverer, you don't get to do that because a company doesn't want that. And then you're left doing something. I have colleagues and I know they're not really believing even in what they're doing. It's super scary to say this, but we know that we come and we deliver a nice day or two or three, and then everyone has a hallelujah moment and then you go away and it dies. So I love your insights there and being systematic about it and, and doing a cascading formation. That sounds, uh, yes, yes, please, more of that. Svetlana, I bet you there wasn't very much emotional intelligence in the old Soviet Union, huh? Or was there? 
You know, I'm looking at my daughter who is growing up right now here and she's with me in Germany and she's been living in a number of countries up to now and uh, in the schools. Uh, they're starting with emotional intelligence. So she's learning mm. on how to react when she is stressed, on how to react when she sees a conflict. Oh. And it becomes the fundamental part on how she is raised. And I wish I had it. I did not have it before. No. Uh, but it also what brings it to me uh, when I'm listening to the guests, uh, honorable guests we have today, that those soft skills, emotions, you know, emotional intelligence, they're not soft. They're power skills. No. Yes. And we should stop calling them soft because they, <laughs> they are not soft at all. They give you the power to really gain trust to drive change, to connect with people better. But also when you listen to people, when you work with people, when you connect to different teams, uh, if you're able to read emotions, you understand that behind every emotion you have a need, a need for something. And if you're able to interpret the needs behind the emotion and meet the need, then you can actually change the behavior. You can change organizations going forward. So I think this is really power. And I hope that it's going to be trained as Heiko mentioned, you know, top down uh, across many yes. corporations because that's the power skill of every leader we need to have. Oh, what a delightful conversation. And we can bring it full circle, guys, because yes, because we are indeed humans. We are not artificial we are human intelligence. We're not artificial intelligence. And if we are to compete in the future that we know is coming of both AI and BI, we need to step up and we need to be very aware of what it is we have that is valuable as human intelligence. And I think part of the subjects that we've discussed together today is what, so we've understood it, what makes a good culture and a good culture is worth gazillions. That's a given. And it's, that's research-based. There's nothing wishy-washy about that. And we've also discovered how if we do it systematically and if we cascade learning teachings down from the top, from the very top, starting with every each individual at the very top, then we stand a chance of actually leaders being the people who will take cultures into a good future. Is that beginning of summing up of the conversation? Yes? Whew, I think I did it. You did I mean, it. <laughs> kind of... Uh, Oh, Heiko and Gabriel, we are so overjoyed that you took the time to be with us today. Are there any final comments you want to make before we round it off? I would say that maybe continuing on what we've been talking the past minutes, that maybe also I think everyone can make a difference in shaping the culture by mm. exposing their emotions um, in meetings and expressing how they feel doing something, maybe expressing if they don't feel good about doing something in a certain way. And then also sometimes it's not always cascading down, but bottom up where people within a team can be a role model in sharing their emotions and maybe teaching the leader yes. how to show emotions and how to deal with it. I, I love this perspective too, because if we just push all the responsibility on the leaders and we sit passively back and kind of go, now change me, that's not going to work either, is it? So the, the individual responsibility, thanks for bringing that up. Heiko, any finishing remarks? Uh, I find this okay. uh, very, very um, inspiring conversation and uh, I haven't uh, used it in the context of a corporate setting in exactly this way. 
So another nice little learning to pick it up on another occasion where I'm working with people. So uh, very cool telecom does this. And thank you for bringing up the idea at the end of the day that age is just a, another assumption, right? <laughs> so... Guys, thank you very much for a delightful conversation. I think, as always, I want to talk more. I want to dig deeper. I want to understand more about culture. But I think we did a little bit of, of groundwork here. Thank you so much for coming on the show and hope to speak again soon. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thank you. To find out the deeper meaning of talent and its human aspects in business environments, subscribe to the Human Centric Podcast and stay tuned.